Uh, as we move now to the uh, scripture lesson for this morning from the letter of James, I want to say we're coming to an end of this uh, sermon series that Steve Shipstead and I, and now, uh, now myself, we're, we're preaching that's based on passages in the New Testament where we are called to do something for one another, like pray for one another, as I just did, as we have done, uh, to love one another, to carry one another's burdens, to encourage one another. And so today we're going to continue with that theme from the letter of James as we listen for sort of instructions on how we treat each other and how we live together in the body of Christ in the church. Listen now for God's word to you from the fifth chapter. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day and in the days ahead. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to start off with a question for you all. Um, the church, that is the whole church, not just Piedmont Community Church, the church of Jesus Christ can be described in the tons of different ways, all sorts of different ways, various words or phrases or metaphors. For example, uh, the church is often called the community of faith or the family of faith or the family. Uh, sometimes the church is called a really beautiful thing, you know, like, uh, like uh, a shelter or something like that. Sometimes, you know, the church gets other names attributed to it that aren't maybe so beautiful, like club, or uh, as my mom famously in my family used to describe one of the churches I went to uh, as a teenager uh, as a cult. <laughs> Uh, well, that was, uh, now she should see me now, right? Hey, Mom, I'm, I'm not in a cult anymore, I hope. So now how about you? What are some words or metaphors or descriptions of the church? Anybody? Just a word, a little short phrase, a metaphor. Anybody? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. What else? Body of, Body of Christ. Anybody else? Community. Rock of Ages, family, family. Home. home. How many of you have ever heard of the church called this? A hospital for sinners. <laughs> Anybody heard that one before? I've heard that one over and over over the years. And, uh, and so I, I never knew where it came from. Hospital for sinners. You know, it's, it's I, well, anyway, we'll get into that in a minute, but 
So I did some research this week to figure out where that phrase comes from, hospital for sinners. So I looked on the internet and you, you Google hospital for sinners and there are all sorts of attributions ranging from the Bible to St. Augustine to Thomas Aquinas all the way to the advice columnist Abigail Van Buren. And you laugh, but the best attribution that I could find to where that phrase comes from is a Dear Abby column in 1964. So as in most things in life, Dear Abby or her sister Ann Landers kind of had all sorts of good things to tell us about life. The full quote is actually this. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Sometimes you hear it, not a hotel for saints. Hospital hotel, hospital museum. And it's a great quote. I love it. I love it. And most likely, dear Abby herself was inspired by the words that she heard passed on somehow or read uh, that were given in a sermon in 1931 by the Episcopal Bishop of Chicago, George Stewart. And he said this, I know the church of Jesus has been full of sinners. What did you think the church was? A club for shining saints? But if it has been a hospital for sinners, it has also been a training school for saints who have been taught and trained to love one another and to serve one another and to care for one another as best they can in any way they can. And I think that's a pretty good vision for almost everything we do as a church. The church, what it can be at its best, a hospital for sinners and a training school for saints. And that's what James is getting at in the letter that he wrote 2,000 years ago. He was, you know who James was, right? He was the younger brother of Jesus. And he wrote this letter. He was probably one of the uh, three top guns of the early church, along with Peter and Paul. He was a big leader of the church in Jerusalem. Everybody would listen to what James had to say. And he writes this letter to a church, we don't know exactly where, but probably in Jerusalem, that was going through a lot of conflict. Whoever heard of that, right? Conflict in the church. Anyway, Rather than hitting him over the head with a bunch of heavy theology, like, you know, Brother Paul routinely did in his letters, James gives the church, and you and me, some really practical advice. In chapter 2, he tells the people he's writing to to fulfill the royal law, the royal law, to love your neighbor's as yourselves. The royal law. Love like that isn't just talk, he says, or having, you know, the right ideas about doctrine or theology or anything else in your head. No, it takes work, which is the context for probably the most famous words that James ever wrote, the words that got him in trouble later on with Martin Luther, who wanted to yank the book of James out of the New Testament. Anyway, James wrote this. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now what I read from chapter 5 is the part of the conclusion of the letter of James. And in it he says that part of the work that we have together as a community of faith is to pray for one another, to celebrate with one another as we sing psalms and hymns of praise, and to uh, reconcile with one another all in the name of healing. And that's an appealing picture. An appealing picture to me. I hope for you too. It's the kind of place I want to be. Kind of people I want to hang out with. Not just on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week, all throughout my life. I want to be in a place, in a church that is a school for saints and a hospital for sinners. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that some of you are probably thinking, well, I kind of like the hospital part, but the sinner part, eh, I'm not so sure about that. And I get it, because especially with how the concept of sin has been passed down and sometimes abused or misconstrued by people over the centuries, I get it. A lot of us were taught that sin is breaking God's laws or committing immoral acts. And, you know, that's not necessarily wrong given, you know, the circumstances. You know, that's absolutely could be right, but it's incomplete. It's just incomplete and easily misunderstood because at its core, sin is a refusal or an inability to be fully human. That's what it is. I like how Serene Jones puts it in a book that I highly recommend. Uh, This book came out a couple years ago. It's called Call It Grace. Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World, Serene Jones. And she points out that in the Christian view, we human beings live according to four basic stories that are each simultaneously true. One, we are created good in the image of God, as we hear very clearly in the creation story in Genesis chapter one. But two, we're also distorted individually and collectively, however it happens and whether or not you wanna call it sin, we are incapable of consistently living into the divine goodness by which we were created. Three, and then we are forgiven and redeemed by God, however you conceive of it happening, through the grace of Jesus Christ. And four, we finally, if we are drawn uh, toward the future together by the Holy Spirit, we can expect a day when all of creation will be made new. Those are the four stories, and they're all true at the same time. So when you tell one of those stories, like the story of sin or fallenness, 
and you isolate it from the other ones, it can be distorted, give you a distorted sense of who you are and what this world is like and your place in it. They're true, all these stories at the same time. So, if we don't affirm that all people are made good, that is in God's image, then we human beings tend to invent division and hierarchy that separates us from other people, good and bad. And if we affirm that we are made in the image of God, but we don't acknowledge sin, we downplay all the ways in which we continue to hurt one another and the world that God so dearly loves. And then again, if we, if we just obsess over sin and don't proclaim God's mercy and transforming grace, then we live without hope. And finally, if we say that we're forgiven right now, and that's the end of the story, but don't cling and live into the promise that God isn't done with us yet, we can fall into complacency, what James calls dead faith. So, to admit that we are sinners, each and every one of us and every human being who has ever lived, is to tell an important truth about who we are. But it is never the end of the story. Still, it allows us to get a sense of what James is talking about in his letter when he says that the prayer of faith will save the sick and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Now, I have to admit that the connection that he makes here between sickness and sin is, is easy to miss. It's easy for us not to understand what he's trying to get at. But you know, to people living 2,000 years ago with a very different understanding of how the world worked, they had no idea about germs or bacteria or infections or viruses or anything like that. To them, the connection between sin and sickness was absolutely clear. Because they assumed that if you got sick, you probably did something bad. Either somebody that you hurt reacted against you by putting a curse on you, or God was punishing you but for violating some sort of a law. That's how they understood things 2,000 years ago. And you see this all the time in, in the healing miracles of Jesus. When he heals somebody, how often does he also say, your sins are forgiven? In fact... One word in Greek, sozo, can be translated to English as either heal or save. So to have your sins forgiven or your body healed, same word, same word in Greek. And that's how they understood the connection between sin and sickness a long time ago. Now, uh, despite our recent, say, history, the last 40 years or so, we have gone through some moral panics and some judgmentalism, haven't we? When certain diseases broke out like HIV AIDS and, and, and COVID more recently, we started blaming people for whatever they did wrong that made them deserve getting sick or however it happened. It was just terrible. That's a topic for another sermon. But despite that, I think that most of us are not inclined to trace the onset of every common cold we get to something we did wrong, to somebody else, or to God. So, how can we understand what James is saying? Well, let's start with our own concept of healing. 
it is incredibly broad, right? We use healing for all sorts of things. The English word heal actually is, has the same root as the word whole, W-H-O-L-E. So healing is to be made whole in some sense, whether it be in your body, your spirit, your relationships. It's having things set right, brought back together, put back together the way it's supposed to be. And healing happens in all sorts of places in all sorts of ways. For, for, for example, yesterday I was with a group of, I don't know how many people there were. Is Mike Bendrowski here today? I think we probably had 15 to 20 people uh, gathered together for a project piece uh, work day or service project at a place called Turning Point in East Oakland. Turning Point is a facility that is a, um, a place where battered women and their kids can live together in safety and anonymity, a place where they can you know, get the treatment or the, the care that they need to move forward in their lives, uh, to get some control again in a very crazy situation that they've lived through and maybe find some new direction in life. So Turning Point, in other words, is a place of healing. And that's why we went there. That's why we went there. Because as James says, if any of you suffer, you should call on the church for aid. He specifically says the elders of the church, which is basically anyone with a capacity for wisdom or some kind of inclination to, to care for other people. Have them pray over you, he says, and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And that injunction to anoint people or to touch them in some sort of a healing way in the name of the Lord, it reminds me of what uh, Paul Brand, who was a medical missionary to lepers in India, wrote about in his book. He says that, quote, of all the things I was able to do for the sick, all the medical science, the wonderful drugs I was able to give to keep the disease from spreading, the one thing the patients said meant the most to them was when they first came to the hospital and the staff reached out their hands and touched them. It made all the difference. For as he says, by offering people medicine, you can give them what we call a cure. But when you're physically present to somebody in desperate need, that's what we can call healing. Another piece in our healing toolkit, James says, is to pray for one another with and for someone who's suffering. Now, it, it seems here that what he's talking about is not so much praying for somebody at a distance, like when you're at home and you have your prayer list and you pray for other people, that's important. What he's talking about here is praying for somebody when you're actually in their presence, physical presence. Um, now, not that prayer itself is gonna you know, change the course of a disease, although I gotta say, I've seen some amazing things happen after a time of prayer that my rational mind could not fathom what was going on, but 
Prayer doesn't change necessarily the course of a disease, and it doesn't change God either. Since God is always doing whatever is possible to bring healing in any given situation. Maybe not giving us everything we want, but all we need. The point is that prayer changes us. Both the person or people doing the praying and the person or people being prayed for. I've seen it countless times as a pastor, and I have felt it so many times myself when somebody prayed for me in my presence, was just there with me, maybe even praying without words, just present in my own time of suffering, times of suffering. In prayer, we open ourselves to the deepest, most vulnerable, most real parts of our shared humanity and to the loving heart of God. And as James puts it, we are lifted up into whatever healing can happen. I like what the uh, Rabbi David Wolpe has to say about prayer. Here's what he says. I have prayed in fear and in joy, in crisis and in calm. Each time I understood that what I was asking for was not the object of my prayer. My prayer that I or someone else would be healed was a prayer stripped of all its topmost layers to be assured that whatever happened would be all right. Every prayer in this way is a prayer for peace. It is peace in the world and in one's soul, the certainty that the pain is not empty, the world is not a void, and the soul and the body are not alone. I like that. And that brings us finally to the importance of confessing our sins to one another. Because maybe the most healing thing we can do as a church as the body of Christ, is to admit our faults when we're at fault for something, when we've hurt somebody, and to forgive one another. And as we are forgiven already, and all the time, by God through Jesus Christ. You know, it may surprise you that um, one of the most frequent complaints I hear as a pastor, you know, aside from the length of a sermon or something like that, one of the most frequent complaints, or the quality of the sermon, who knows, has to do with something we already did in our worship service. Can you guess what it is? What, what do people complain about the most? Not music, don't worry, Steve. Prayer of confession, exactly. People complain about the prayer of confession. People say, it's such a downer. Or depending on the exact words in the prayer, they'll say, why do I have to confess out loud to something I'm not guilty of? Well, to the first complaint, all I can say is, yes, confession can be a downer. But only when you see it in isolation, as if that's all we're doing on Sunday morning. All just groveling in how bad we are. That's not what we're doing. But we have to take account of it. We have to be real as human beings, as followers of Jesus Christ, who was about as real a person as there ever was. And then to the gripe about not feeling guilty for the sins we're confessing, I, 
I just say, hey, great, good for you. <laughs> I'm really glad you didn't do that awful thing. But the prayer of confession that we say together in worship isn't about our individual failings. It's about our common need to be forgiven. Whatever we do wrong, or whatever we don't do right. Think of it like this, too. Just imagine that even if you don't feel particularly guilty about one of the things we say in a prayer of confession, someone else, someone else may be sitting right next to you, does feel, does carry a burden of shame or guilt about that or something related to whatever we were saying. And the very fact that we're all saying those words together gives that person safety, an opportunity to say the words that they've been holding so tightly on the inside that, 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 that have been pushing them down in their own lives. We are giving them permission to say what needs to be said in their own lives within the context of a community of love and care and forgiveness. And that moment of shared confession might be all it takes to bring transformation to a person's life. For example, pastor told me about a guy in his congregation who had some deep financial trouble. Uh, he was ashamed about it. He didn't tell anybody. He couldn't find the courage. He couldn't even tell his family. So he proceeded to tap out all of his bank accounts. He, he maxed out his credit cards. He even took his adult, uh, young adult daughter's credit card and used it and maxed that one out too, without her knowledge, until finally the gig was up. Jig was up. He maxed that one out too. And he had to come face to face with his wife and his daughter and tell them what happened. The pastor didn't know any of this was going on at the time. He only found out about it later. But later on, the man did tell him that he came so close in his time of shame and guilt to committing suicide. He just couldn't live with himself anymore. And you know what saved him? He said this that what finally freed him to seek out the help that he needed was coming to church week after week to confess his sin, to tell the truth about his dishonesty and the harm he had done to others, and to do it in the company of others with the assurance that God would set him free. If only he could receive that gift by being real and honest and upfront about his desperate need. In that sense, the prayer of confession saved his life. It doesn't do that for everybody, obviously, but it can. It can. Telling the truth in the company of others. That's what James is getting at in his letter. The healing power of confession, both to God and to one another. Now, I must admit that there are good ways and bad ways to confess to other human beings. I'm not going to get into all of them, but we probably have all been there, right? Uh, sometimes it doesn't seem to work. Sometimes the timing isn't right. 
It takes time and patience to, to reconcile and to get over whatever hurdle is, is between you. Uh, or your admission of guilt or just saying you're sorry can come off as an empty gesture if all it is is a way of justifying your, your actions or rationalizing them. But in this training school for saints, this hospital for sinners we call the church, we can learn little by little how to mend the brokenness in our relationships with one another. Especially now. I mean, at a time in our society where it seems like everybody wants forgiveness for whatever it is. They seem to crave it. But when few people seem willing to give it graciously or to receive it humbly, we in the church need to show the world that we are Christians by how we love one another and how, by how we reconcile and forgive one another too. For as James says in his lesson that we have today, in the translation called The Message from Eugene Peterson, James says, the prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. Powerful. So, let's try to live right together with God and with each other. As much as we can as saints and sinners both at the same time, let's pray and confess and forgive and heal one another and let's extend that same healing grace to all of our neighbors near and far in Jesus' name. Amen.